I am really excited to be here today with Neil DeGrade of Dirt Poor Robins and Drew Garrett of the famous Twitter feed, Drew's Ecology. Um, uh, Drew is a is an ethnomusicologist, is that correct? Uh, I'm a music teacher with a background in ethnomusicology. Okay, let's put it that way. And Neil is a film director and a musician and a composer. All of Correct. Things. Yes. yes. Many, <laughs> many uh, different hats I wear. Too many. I, I made a mistake in life. I uh, <laughs> should have picked a lane, but here we are. <laughs> That's what makes it so fun. So, um, and I'm just, a, I'm just a person who wanders around picking up pieces here and there. And one of the pieces that I picked up was a conversation that Drew and Neil were having on Twitter about music. And uh, so, Drew, I'm going to ask you to put up that Twitter thread. And uh, yeah, so that. I actually have a I have a brand new computer. I actually need to restart my Zoom, so I'll be in in 30 seconds, and then I'll be able to do that. Sorry. Okay. Well, the the um, meanwhile we'll entertain everyone while Drew does. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to entertain? You want to put up a piece of your music while we're waiting? <laughs> um. Well, I mean, I you know we can add it in later and pretend like I just did it. Okay. Boop. <laughs> so that's from that's from our new record. We have an EP out that's going to turn into a longer project uh, called uh, Firebird. The EP is called Prelude to Firebird, and that should be kind of obvious. So uh, we're excited. The album's doing really well. Um, I think the first for the first time ever, we've passed uh, two million streams in a month. Oh um, and so, yeah, that's great. I'm loving it. Uh, it is great because we we do this in almost perfect anonymity. Like there's a small core of people that know who we are personally. And pretty much everybody else is just picking it up and engaging with it on their own and, and other people are sharing it with them and they're finding it. So uh, it's been, so when, it's been a great you, year. When so you far. put out this single, is that free? And then when you put out the LP that then people buy it, is that how it works? No, or things are virtually free to people. So there, there are some very lovely people and also who want higher quality uh, bit rates who will buy from Bandcamp. Um, you know, we don't have a ton of people on there, but that, you know, as far as, uh, return of investment that's a better mm -hmm. return on investment because otherwise we're getting 0.003 to 0.005 cents per stream you know so i mean you can do the math um on how that adds up and then uh anyway meanwhile the that's basically how it goes for us so we put stuff up people find it they listen to it and we get paid we have a um, couple of services that collect money for us we make money on ad revenue t-shirt sales um t-shirt sales and physical um products basically match the amount of money we make streaming right now so uh that's what we're doing and i got a, some new things coming up um uh it was just announced i'm doing uh one of the fairy tale series for jonathan peugeot and the symbolic world press uh which i'm very excited about so i'm trying to do more writing because uh there's only so long you can rock and roll um and uh, i've got a lot of things i want to do in my life besides music as well so that's where i'm at wow that's exciting so I see that Drew has got our, our tweet thread up here. <clears throat> so Drew, why were you thinking about this thing? You said Inayat Khan, and now who is Inayat Khan? Uh, Inayat Khan is a uh, 19th and 20th century Sufi mystic from India. And he had an interest in how music is uh, reflective of the structure of the cosmos of reality. And he had a very perennialist philosophy. So even though Sufism is like a sect of Islam, uh, 
you can read uh, his a, a book that collected all of his writings about music into a single into a single volume. Um, he's very perennialist about it. He's very sort of universal. In fact, he wouldn't even necessarily sniff that he was particularly Muslim because he quotes from the Bible and from Hinduism so often. But uh, so uh, this tweet thread got started um, because I was um, reading the Bible and some thoughts were jiggling in my head. Um, and there's some ideas about music um, that I've been trying to formulate and discuss and talk about that are really hard to put words to because it's a very uh, sophisticated concept. Um, the Bible doesn't have uh, a word for music in the Old Testament. Um, and in the New Testament, which is in Greek, it does use the literal word mus musikos, but that only occurs one time in Revelation, and it's actually not a happy context. Um, so trying to pull the threads together of what the Bible is saying about music, um, uh, sometimes you just have to take a, a bigger level um, and try to understand sound in general. How does sound reveal truth? And, and um, I noticed this uh, pattern um, where... Well, um, hold on. Before you go yeah. too far, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the first part of your tweet thread because this also so goes on podcasts, so some people won't be able to see this. Inayat Khan said, "Music is the least idolatrous art form because music does not coerce specific images or even words to come to mind. It just is, revealing beauty and pattern without form." These verses from the Torah in Deuteronomy 4 seem to back up that intimation. Should I keep going or what would you like me? What would you like? Why don't you read it? The part that you that, that stood out to you. Okay. So, so this is from Deuteronomy chapter four. Uh, in this chapter, um, God is speaking to the people Israel through Moses. And then in, uh, Verse 11, he's recounting the, the story of Mount Horeb and how the glory of God descended on the mountain. And it says this, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. Then the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you were to follow in the land you were crossing the Jordan to possess. And then in verse 15, he repeats the same idea for emphasis. Verse 15, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up at the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worship things that were created." So that's the passage. These are, uh, it's a cool quote and that's a cool passage to pair with it. Um, I've had an intuition about this same sort of idea. I express it slightly differently um, than uh, the, the original quote. And 
how life presents itself to us is like there now there's precognitive notions where we're always seeing pattern and then we're turning those patterns into things but it happens so quickly that as we move through the world we don't really see we see things first it happens so quickly before we can even pay attention to it we have this journey we look at the thing we collect the details we name it that's the thing it's an object could be an animal can be a lamp can be a human being um, can be a sky, you know, can be anything. So we see things in the world. And then over time, what's revealed to us is the story. So you even take visual art, like a painting, and you look at a painting and you see the objects in the painting, if it's that type of painting, if it's not too abstract, you see some kind of object in it. And then you unpack that like a story. And that's why they say a picture, you know, um, you know, it can it can spawn a thousand poetic words about it because we can look at it and describe what's going on and have different interpretations of it. So the interpretation of the story is implied, but we see the things first. That's what happens in life too. So it requires some kind of pattern collection over time to, um, you know, understand the story. Music flips this. It's now when he says reflective art, I think that's exactly the way to put it. If you think about um, how it functions in the sense that if you look at the earth and the earth is placid water and you look at this and let's imagine it's a night sky, there's a complete perfect image of that sky flipped upside down. Um, and so music literally in almost every way is sort of upside down. And because what we see in music is we're presented with patterns first, explicitly opposite of life in that sense. Um, so we, un we, we unpack these patterns and then those patterns imply a thing, you know, like you could take a very specific example of that like Peter and the wolf, where it's the, the music is meant to illustrate the actions and the behavior of a certain animal. Um, so, um, this is off to a really good start in the sense that this is something I've always wanted to talk to people about, um, because I think that it's part of, I, I would call it a reflective art. We can get more of the symbolism of reflection and how, uh, Christ exposes the reflection, um, and how he talks about this. There's a certain economy within the earth that, um, that is backwards from how it presents itself in the, in the heavens in the sense that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But I think, you know, I don't want to say too much more, but. I've had the same intuition because music uh, and I, I don't know if I would say non-idolatrous because I think that's, you know, that that's a matter of an intention and outcome and anything can, you know, an image itself can be non-idolatrous. That's, um, you know, it comes down to a human agent to turn something and make it idolatrous in the uh, what how they interact with it to make it um, an idol. But at the same time, he's got a point because by using that frame of being the least idolatrous, he's also exposing the fact that the thing that we would usually use to represent an idol or to interact with an idol is not explicit in music. It's only implied. It's the implicit aspect of music. Does that make sense? That's all really interesting. Um, and I, I want to talk more about this reflection uh, idea. Um, something I have done with my students over the last few years is I will play them a recording of Vivaldi's seasons. Yeah. Um, and I'm, so I'll, I'll play them spring and I'll play them winter and I'll, I'll ask them the question, what do you suppose this music is about? What's the inspiration behind the music? And I'll usually get answers like um, they're seeing a scene from a movie and then it's like a, a drama or there's a, um, maybe there's romance between characters or maybe there's anger and tension, you know, between characters and things like that. But I have never heard anybody ever describe a season or like, oh, I hear birds chirping or I see snow or ice or things like that. 
Um, uh, whereas the uh, we could very easily show a painting or a picture of the four seasons and and then like people will just like you said instantly process that that's that that's the inspiration and that's the meaning of the of the message right. musical sounds are the meaning of musical sounds are not obvious uh and that's partially why they're so that is in fact why they're so mysterious and why we keep going back to music as a culture uh, no matter how disenchanted um, the culture is, um, no matter how far away you go from mysticism or faith in things that are immaterial, music seems to be like uh, like a firewall of belief. Like you, you, you slam into it and you can't get past it. And even the skeptic atheists, they'll still be drawn to music's mystery. And um, I... Uh, uh, with Inayat Khan, um, he, yeah, so his point, you're, you're treating him very generously, and I appreciate you steelmanning the point that he's making. Um, yeah, he's saying that it, he, he has a point about coercion, about this idea of forms that coerce your attention or your mind. Um, and by, by saying that music being, I've heard music described as pure patterns by, you know, Jonathan Pajot and, and others. So Inayat Khan has a similar understanding about music, how it's, it is pure patterns and it scales up. And if, if music is right. So like we talk about the fractal a lot in, in symbol, in symbolic talking, how things are fractals of the larger cosmic structure. Well, music, if it is, a symbol of anything it's a symbol of the fractal structure it is a symbol of fractalism as such um it's 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 not looking at a specific object which you then look through and see that, that same object reflected up here it's mm -hmm. this whole fractal cosmic structure that's then perhaps you could say reflected back to us uh, uh to sort of use your word there yeah no i i'm totally tracking with you on that um, so it, it brings up a lot of things to mind too, uh, because you're, you're, you're so right when you're saying that like it, music is a hard thing for people to just interact with analytically. Um, because if the music's any good, you'll get lost in your process of trying to analyze it. So this is, this is something I learned in, when I was in drama classes, when I was a kid, it was, you know, it's it, like the, the theater director was telling me, it's like, listen, we have to have good blocking, meaning we have to position people in the way. So there's a good line of sight from the audience that the important motions and the and the looks in the eyes can be captured, that the voice is projected into the audience. At the same time, this has to feel natural. And at the end of the day, if we do blocking perfectly, a, not a single person in the audience should have been like, that was great blocking. It's supposed to be one of those things that disappears into it. So uh, music is wonderful with that because, uh, yeah, you can watch it. You can. You know, it, it, it can help a blind person see it can, um, you know, it can it can do so many things that we you you could explain with words all day long. And that yet we are left with a feeling and an atmosphere and um, and a story and poetry and a, and a symphony. And this this impacts us in a like, again, precognitive way very often um, where we don't know why it's having this effect. We can't really track down what's working and what's not working. Although there seems to be a commonality between people. So it has this, there's a euphonious aspect of music where it can suddenly unite people that have almost, that would think on the surface would define themselves only by their differences. So they're having a similar experience with it because music in a way, so I, I think one of the things I'm applying here, like there, there, there are aspects of story that unpack 
and slow down like the tempo of life so we can see exactly how we're making uh, you know it's like a there back again journey like a story like the hobbit where we start in the shire we leave the shire we go out and then the shire is redefined as a different space um or the wizard of oz where she leaves home and she returns home and then oh there's no place like home even though she couldn't wait to get out of home in the beginning there's this there and back again journey and we're having these moments all the time super fast and they get unpacked in story form very slowly so we can like start to understand ourselves better and so music does this because okay we can talk about one aspect of this is that music shows us how expectations are formed um something that uh we don't really talk about but there's one of the things, one of the reasons melodic and harmonic content works is because for whatever reason as human beings, we can imply a tonal center in a scale through music incredibly quickly in an instant. Like even Karen's example she has of the circle of fifths and why that whole thing works. That whole thing works because all of us, for some reason, we're given this innate ability to have a very specific and concrete abstract um, re response to the abstract of music, meaning that there'll be a tonal center, there'll be an expectation of, of what we're presented, what's going to be presented next. And that seems to be, um, that seems to not be as arbitrary as uh, people who talk about their taste in music would like it to be or would expect it to be. Those things seem to be very consistent across the board. And we can see that in film scoring and how film scores are used to under to to create uh, you know subtext for the story we're having to express that inner emotional language that you can't communicate just by just through image. But that, yeah, like so that, that would be, that would be yeah. idiosyncratic to culture though, wouldn't it, Drew? I mean, the circle of fifths wouldn't work in some of those other cultural milieus, would it? I was just thinking as Neil was talking, I was running through the Rolodex of musical cultures that I'm familiar with. There are no examples that come to my mind of a musical culture that doesn't have a, like a concept of like, well, how do I say this? They'll demonstrate the concept of a tonic in, mm -hmm. in a song, even if maybe they don't have a word for tonic in their lexicon. Um, but, but yeah. It would be a different tonic than what, wouldn't their expectation be a different expectation than what we in, in the West have though? Uh, sure. There, there's, um, there's a degree of learned, behaviors when it comes to the passed on tradition of music that you're initiated into. Um, uh, one of my favorite examples to compare with is uh, in India where their whole system of ragas, their, their musical modes, the raga scales. Like, okay, so, so we, we in the West, we have, let's, let's just call them seven note scales for now. Um, and then in India, they have seven note scales as well, but they don't, a raga is not a seven note scale. There's hundreds and hundreds of ragas. If you just go to Wikipedia, type in Hindustani list of ragas, you'll get like this endless list from A to Z. And the, the thing that a raga has is uh, um, a, a schema of melodic development. So you might have two scales that are identical. Let's say two C major scales. Um, but in one raga, the steps need to sort of follow this tonal pattern, but then in another raga, the steps need to follow that tonal pattern. And so when you realize the scales in a particular melodic way, that changes the identity of the scale itself. That's what a raga, that's what a makam is uh, in all these different. So, 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 I, so to answer your question, expectation, the, the, the specific tonal patterns of expectation will vary 
from culture to culture. So the concept of the leading tone, like a one, five, one, as that is structured in Western music, that's a very Western concept. Other cultures have leading tones and there's certainly a, uh, like a, a leading tone phenomenon that occurs, but it doesn't, it doesn't realize, it doesn't lay itself out the same way. Um, and if you are initiated into uh, Indian classical music or Arabic maqam music or things like that, your ears have been trained uh, to know what to expect next. But if you're listening from the outside, you, you don't know what's coming next. And it's just a bunch of raw data coming at you that, you know, kind of like, like AI, you don't know how to flip heads from tails or prioritize what sounds you're supposed to be looking for. So there's a bit of like an initiation that you go through when you're learning to come to appreciate a, a kind of music. No, I, you're, you're exactly right. Um, too, though, at the at the at the end of the day, it all begins in the same innate human abilities um, that humans all have the ability to hear. Like, as far as we know, like it's hard to hear through someone else's ears, but like the the an expectation of some sort of tonal structure, a tonal center, that it all begins with a certain experience we have in the world. And that when the, those patterns, um, when they add, when they deepen our experience, they seem to have some sort of. Like they feel like they go together, just like certain colors seem to go together to us. Um, it, it all begins, all the different cultures. Now you can look at the conversation they've been having about music for a long period of time and where it's led to. But it all started with the same person. And and we can test this, too, because, you know, people who are adopted from these countries that grow up in America don't have innately, you know, like a foreign taste in music if they're not presented and educated to that necessarily. So um there is a sense that there it we're not a, not a blank slate when it comes to our taste and our culture, but that actually no, there's this there's this thing we all share in common. It's an experience in the world. It's the ability to hear. It's the ability to have an expectation for what's coming next, and the way music presents that um, allows all these different cultures to develop. Now, I mean, uh, Drew's probably thought a lot about this, but the reason things develop in different culture is is based on different priorities and different accessibilities very often, and different stories they tell. So. Um, you know, for example, um, let me let me give you. Uh, so as I'm learning, as I've learned more um, Eastern music, um, mm. uh, Middle Eastern and uh, and far Eastern, I like realize that there's there's certain scales. Like as someone who's very into harmony, harmony and choral music, there's certain scales and patterns where you don't have anything close to what you've come to expect with the normal modes in in Western music, which is yeah. oh, I should be able to start. I should be able to build a proper chord, a, a proper triad off of every note in the scale. Mm -hmm. Certain scales. When you get out of, uh, you know, when you get out of the West, it's like, whoa, okay, so wh why don't, why haven't they opted for that? And and I think the reason is is just a, a normal metaphysical problem we face in every category that is is perfection versus accessibility. Um, so uh, there are certain scales and certain tonalities. So let's say I'm playing a violin, um, you know, or a cello behind me. I can intonate that if I'm good. Perfectly, meaning that there are certain ratios between the scales in music and Western music, meaning that a, they call a fifth a perfect fifth, a fourth a perfect fourth. There's an ideal, perfectly in tune mathematical ratio uh, between every note we use in, in the West. Um, the problem is, is that, uh, you know, as music started to progress, we realized that, that if we wanted to keep those perfect ratios, it was going to be very difficult on certain types of instruments to change keys to um, add surprises that were non-modal to the music. So for example, a piano is inherently out of tune for this purpose. They yeah. they allow error so they can include more notes. And so we can think of this the same way as if you're starting a community choir or if you're having a professional choir. Um, you know, your community choir 
is going to include people that aren't perfect for the sake of having enough people to actually have a choir, meaning that their people are going to have harder time holding the pitch, um, maybe less knowledge about, um, you know, how to uh, form music and same with elementary school music. We all understand that the elementary school band is not going to play the piece perfectly, but we're trying to create this inclusion and in, in allowing a certain amount of uh, friction and error um, for the sake of participation. Now, as you go up higher and higher, obviously you want to include better and better people. So you have something rare and something unique. Um, but in some Eastern music, it doesn't seem like that's a priority at all. It's like, we're going to stick with the pedal tone. We're going to have, you know, so I go to Greek church. It's a lot of Greek chanting, yeah. you know, one, one uh, tonal note at the bottom. So because the, the, the three chord harmony is not going to make sense in that, in that setting, if we try to keep those ratios perfect, but you get these chanters that come in and they'll bend a third or a minor third or a major third. Like, I know, sorry if you're not a musician and you're listening to us talk about this, but they'll bend notes in a way that if you're a piano player, you're like, oh, that major third is, um, or, you know, that minor third is is flat compared to what I'm used to or, or, or sharp compared to what I'm used to because it actually, these other scales allow for it to be perfectly in tune ratio-wise. So some of that is a matter of taste over time because like the better my ears got, the more I hated playing piano. <laughs> It was just yeah. like, and the more I exposed myself to other things, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, the piano is so out of tune. Yeah. Um, you know, as you learn some of these things. So, um, you know, some of that's a matter of taste. Also, I believe this is just something I'll throw out there. I think in a way in the modern times, our tastes have been formed against us. Um, you know, we've had this more abstract um, intrusions in the world as there's become more products when we're disconnected from, you know, the cows we eat or, um, you know, the way the food is grown, it just appears in front of us in different contexts. We drive down the road. You can listen. I can drive down the beach here and I can listen to music that has nothing to do with the beach or I can listen to music that has something to do with it. And then eventually we have the computer and the computer is constantly presenting in a world that's filled with round things, squares, pixels all the time. And even digital audio is uh, has, is square, it's square step. So there's a there's a fragmentation that's happened in modern times where. I don't know if all of our tastes are good for us anymore. I don't know if we the joke we've learned to laugh at is really a funny joke or not, or it's just a, an aspect that we've been moved far away from our natural experience as a person, from phenomenological experience in the world as God intended. And we're more and more in this fragmented, disembodied, disconnected experience. And our music and our art is starting to reflect that in a way that uh, that feels anti-human almost. So, no, I just, uh, so here, I, I'd kind of like to pull us up a little bit and back up a yeah. little bit to just this idea of what is actually music. I was hmm. I was having this email exchange with Drew yesterday on is music a thing in the universe that we just tapped into, or is music something that is invented by man? I mean, they're asking this question all the time of mathematicians. These great mathematicians, they always ask them, is math discovered or is it invented? And there's dozens of videos on the internet with great mathematicians contemplating that question. And since music is in one aspect a mathematical language, I think it would be very interesting to, to uh, explore that a little bit. And um, I have a couple of quotes that I'm gonna put up on the screen to kind of guide this conversation. Uh, let's see, share screen. My recent Substack is on this topic as well. So that's yes, exactly. A very recent question. Yeah. So let me just make this a little bit larger. Can you guys see that now? Yeah. Okay. So 
So there's this great quote from Marshall McLuhan that Patrick Wagner put up on one of my videos recently. The effects of technology do not occur at the level of opinions or concepts, but they alter sense ratios or patterns of perception steadily and without any resistance. So this would go to Neil's comment just now about how our modern sensibilities are being altered. The serious artist is the only person able to encounter technology with impunity, just because the serious artist is an expert aware of the changes in sense perception. Mm. So, so we can hope that the artists are the ones that are kind of holding back the tide here. <laughs> but then Fair I also not. wanna look at um, one of the things Drew talked about quite a bit in his Substack on what is music and <clears throat> what are the different aspects of music is this idea of the telos that music seems to have some sort of a telos or an, an end as it's an end directed activity. So there's this guy named Stephen Talbot, who is very beautifully bringing up all the questions that are inherent in a purely materialist evolutionary framework. And he says, we can speak of, end directed activity without assuming an external goal to be planned for and aimed at, we can think of the organism as simply giving expression to the wholeness of its own nature, which comes to an ever fuller realization over the course of its life. Mm. Now, it seems to me that music naturally arises in the human person when they are seeking to give expression to the wholeness of their own nature. And a person who dives into music wholeheartedly over the course of their lives comes more and more in touch with that wholeness of their own nature through the music. Now, in order to, and I wanna set this up just a little bit, there is this concept um, that Stephen Wolfram, who's a mathematician, has come up with called computational reducibility. He says, in general, the universe as a whole is computationally irreducible. There's so much complexity, so much inherent randomness, complexity, it's complicated. It's completely computationally irreducible. If you needed to explain the universe, you would just have to set it going and then let it run its course before you'd ever know how it's gonna end up. But within that universe, there are slices of computational reducibility that allow us to frame mathematical laws, to frame the laws of physics, to see the world through the perspective of creatures like ourselves. And it seems to me that music is of a similar thing that, that the people who in India, who, through whom music arose, they had a certain cultural texture. So they saw, if music is something available out there in the universe and we tap into it, then their cultural sensibility gave them a particular slice of what music was that they adopted into their culture. And in the West, we see a slightly different slice of that music thing that's out there that so in other words, I'm positing that music is a thing that exists in the universe, whether we exist or not. 
But because we exist as human beings with a particular bent, we pick up a certain slice of that that then reflects beauty to us in our own frame. So my frame will be different than the frame of somebody who lives in Tunisia or somebody who lives in India or somebody who lives in Africa, but we're all tapping into the same body. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, man, there's so much to say. So little time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. My, my none, of the, and none of this stuff tiring. can be really synthesized into like three sentences either. Well, that's why we're uh, here. That's why we have an hour and a half. Yeah. So go yeah, for right, it. Right. Go for it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's this idea that the word is inbuilt to all things that are all things that have their being this, this word that's picked up in the new Testament as logos. And then that concept is then married to this idea that there's logos and rationality. It's all inbuilt and that Christ is the incarnate word. When God makes man, it's the first time he makes something where he's being instrumental. He's taking thing, the dust, right. And blowing into it. It's not just speech, right. It's instrumentality, right plus speech let us make man in our own image um but then there's a little bit more of a complexity to it um so there's so there's a little bit of a justification even right from the outset of of let's say technological innovation of man we were just sort of critiquing that a little bit earlier but there's something foundational about sound as such that um conveys knowledge and truth that binds people together um, that all people, uh, certainly do. So whether or not it's a thing, right. The, to quote the famous philosopher, King Bill Clinton, it depends on what you mean by the word is, <laughs> uh, it, what is music? Um, some have said it's, it's really a verb musicing. We, we do it. It's instead of an object, right? And so in the modernist frame, as I talk about in my in my substack, like the, the modernist frame would be to say there's an essence and then it's made up of these, it's comprised of uh, of ingredients or elements and, and that we can think of it. Like, and so we objectively sort of scrutinize the, the, the object of music. But somehow it, it is in part discovery uh, where all people are doing music. Everybody who's ever studied music has always come to this conclusion. There is no society that doesn't have a form of singing, dancing, playing instruments, these kinds of behaviors. They don't all call it music. And that's a really important thing to note. Um, in some cultures, uh, they don't have the word that we have come to accept as the word music, where we're just talking about sounds. Um, there are many cultures that don't just abstract the sounds from the rest of what's going on in their daily lives. And so we're, when we're talking about music, we're already coming at it from like a anachronistic, futuristic, looking backwards sort of a right. lens. That's a really important uh, th- perspective to have. Because again, in the Old Testament, you don't see the word music anywhere, even though in English it says David brought the musicians and da 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 da. It's words like pulling. It's like when Elisha asks for the the harpist or or the the player, he doesn't say, bring me a musician, really literally says, bring me one who plucks, one who thrums. Uh, uh, So so anyways, that's just sort of an aside. Um, Yeah, I'm just going to get started with that. Uh, Neil, what you got? 
Yeah, you're right. So, I mean, that, that's, that is a modern problem, too, in the sense that we think we can talk about abstract categories and that that somehow suffices or that's the real factual starting point of it. With music, we have something very different. Now, of course, I'm not coming from this. Karen and I have spoke before. She knows I'm no materialist. Um, I actually I don't spend a lot of time like maybe Jonathan Peugeot does and Jordan Peterson does trying to frame things up for materialists. I have a presupposition that is not a materialist presupposition. And I, I always begin with that point and I don't apologize for it, meaning that I believe there's an invisible God who made everything and that his unseen attributes are in nature. They're they're perfectly here. They're that the logos can be seen in nature as well as it can be expressed through scripture and through ideas and through actions and through the experience of loving one another and through faith. Um, so music for me doesn't fall outside of this. So I have no need to ever describe a universe where music um is an arbitrary artifact of the mechanical causalities of humanity. Yeah. So at the same time, I see something that's planted within the human body, the ability to appreciate and understand music, not just um, not just like uh, there's a, like a, there's more music than we can hear in that sense. Um, that but that there's music is actually crafted around our actual capabilities. So we'll talk about a couple of categories. I'll throw out there. We can talk about one's tempo, the idea that uh, songs have a range of tempos that we will accept as music, and once we get outside that range of tempo, it's very hard for people to understand how the what we're hearing is associated in a musical story or composition so um the bottom space where people stop like almost all people stop being able to recognize one beat being related next to another is below 33 beats per minute so at 33 beats per minute if i write a song and i'm playing quarter notes which means like one in, in four four time one beat one note per beat you start losing the ability to engage your body and move with that music so lo and behold this would be a very dangerous critical point if your heart rate dropped that slow it's the point at which your heart rate could not function at that now you find that the upper limits of music and tempo function the same way that there is an actual frame rate to which we'll accept something as the category what we call rhythm and rhythm, uh, meaning that if like we start to get around 240 beats a minute and higher, there's there's very few pieces that are written that are truly that fast, meaning that you can notate music in any way possible to leave it on the sheet and say, this is how many beats per minute there are. But when it comes down to it, the quarter notes faster than 240 beats per minute, there's very few pieces that have successfully been composed that, that really get that across. Because why? Well, what happens if our heart rate is at 240 beats per minute for a, a sustained period of time? It's death. Death on both ends, right? Death by multiplicity, death by unity, like your heart slows to a stop or your heart goes too fast. Um, so when we look at rhythm and, and just those aspects of just the movement through time pattern in music, we learn that right away that these things are very attached to the human experience, but maybe even a little beyond that, like other things that have bodies like a parrot, like it'd be it's, if you've ever had a pet bird, like you can get a bird to bop with music. And that, in fact, that like um, rhythm itself is associated with body, um, because if I if I, you know, sing a pretty note or make a pretty sound, you're not going to stop tapping your foot or dancing. But if I play a good groove, a good beat, you might find like this. One of the things when I'm showing someone a new song, if it has a little bit of groove to it, I'm watching them out of my peripheral vision because they should be moving. And if they're not moving, I did something wrong. Like their foot's going to be tapping. They're going to be bobbing in their chair. They're going to be nodding their head. It's going to be hard for them to sit still. So. There's an aspect, like, let's just say, this is just one of 40 aspects we could talk about in music. This is why we don't have enough time. But it's every aspect of it is directly related to your ability to hear, 
the own rhythms of your body, like what we call a rhythm, a heartbeat, a musical beat. There's a reason why this that kind of beat works in every culture, pretty much, because it's it's very um, tied to a human experience. So the the wonderful mystery to impact is someone who comes from my presupposition, meaning that God, the invisible God, um, you know, made himself visible through creation in a way and that his invisible attributes can be seen through these things, it starts to ask me to contemplate why. Why rhythm? Why tonality? Why music? And what is this exposing us about mm-hmm. this invisible God who we can't yeah. we can't necessarily put our hands directly on with our five senses? Um, so I, I just started watching a series. It's an interview of Joseph Campbell. It's, an, it's, an, it's like a six-part extended interview of Joseph Campbell talking about myth um, like pretty soon before he ultimately passed away. Uh, and it's a treasure trove of really interesting nuggets. One of the things he said was in the, so we're going to return to our creation myth now. When Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, they were cast out from a realm in which essentially it was a, what did time mean in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, there's this idea that there was evening and then there was morning, um, which, I, which I, I, that's a pattern we see on the Sabbath where Sabbath starts in the evening. It goes from evening to evening. So even in the creation, it's like the day starts from the evening, evening to morning. But what did, what was time like before the fall? And uh, something Joseph Campbell said was as soon as they took that bite of that fruit from the knowledge of good, the tree for the knowledge of good and evil, that's a duality. Uh, we were then banished into a time-bound reality. And he makes the big emphasis that when you live in a time-bound reality, the whole cosmos right now is in a time-bound reality. You've entered into a permanent field of dualities. And something Joseph Campbell emphasizes is that one of the purposes of many religions is to, is to escape that field of duality. Like in the nature of God is all of this stuff happening, um, this or this. He's both and in a lot of ways. Um, what music does, see, when we're, talk, when we're already talking about taking patterns of sound and situating them in, in time, first of all, I think, I think fundamentally, if music is anything, this has been my developing thesis, it's the ritualization of time. It's, it's taking the times and turning them into ritual. So Ecclesiastes, we talk about there's a time for mourning and a time for dancing. Well, there's a song for mourning and there's a song for dancing, right? Uh, in all of those juxtaposed dualities of times, we have songs and, 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 and the liturgies that can go with any of those seasons, any of those times in our lives. When we, when we do music, we're escaping the strict Kronos and entering into Kairos. There's this chirotic time concept, right? So Kronos and Kairos, right? Uh, Kairos is the, it's undefined seasons, like the seasons are defined, but there's no strict like measurement of pulse or time of when those seasons sort of change. It's like, you know, you know, where, you know that the times are good when the money's rolling and, and, you know, and the guys at the bar are having a good time and you know, the times are bad when you're down in your luck and things like that. Well, those are different kinds of time. So everybody, this goes back to Neil's point about expectation. The fact that music itself is all about, as he said, as Neil said, home, 
departure home, right? And and when we have a tonic, when we have a tonal center, that's that's our reference point. That's home. Um, uh, music is fundamentally all about our experience through time. That's why, like the hero's journey, maps really well onto lots of forms of song and lots of forms of music. Um, and there's there's a, there's an essence to the fact that because you can't even really see it, you're just sort of entering into it. I think of C.S. Lewis's tool shed, his meditation on a tool shed, where he sees the beam of light coming in. Light. Yeah. And what, when you look through the beam of light, right, you're you're actually entering into it and you're experiencing it. We 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 actually we're always in the beam of light when we're doing music. We're never really like looking at it from the outside. We're just in it. And we're experiencing it. And because of that, it gives us a sense of timelessness because we've exited, let's, let's say, let's say mundane time and entered into, let's say, sacred time. Uh, and so uh, because of this temporal factor, I think of music fundamentally as, let's say, ritual rather than, let's say, icon or object, uh, because there's a behavior aspect to doing and participating right. in music that's not in um, other, let's say, art forms. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, Karen, do you have something before I jumped in? Well, I was just going to drop in here this idea of um, Wolfgang Smith. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his stuff about his cosmic icon has at the center the eternal realm, which is this, the source from which all of the universe comes. And then the perimeter is the corporeal world, the world where we exist here that has both space and time. But then in between the center and the, the perimeter, that area in the middle is called the intermediary realm. And that's an area of only time. So I wonder if maybe when you get in the flow of music, if, if we're sort of existing a little bit outside of the corporeal realm and in this intermediary realm because that intermediary realm is also the realm of dreams the realm of mm. spiritual experience in this in this timeless arena i mean i certainly experience that when i paint or when i'm deeply involved in in being if i'm doing music deeply involved in the doing of music i i'm no longer aware of the space around me yeah I'm actually not even aware of time but time yeah. is obviously occurring mm -hmm. right but but that's all happening kind of inside me and not outside of me in some way yeah okay so you know very often in in metaphysics and symbolism if i'm going to try to slowly bring this back down to earth a little bit and less abstract um, there's this notion that the feminine, like like what Wolfgang is saying, he has that example where he has that circle and the dot in the middle and the line to the edge mm -hmm. in the sense that at the core, at the center of things is the identity itself, is the peak of the mountain, is the thing that we've named. And then everything else as it moves away, that's still a part of it is still participating in that core. But as we get to the edges, it's less like the core until eventually we're sound, we're surrounded by something that's just totally outside of it. Chaos versus order. Okay. So when we think about the oceans framing in an island, the land, we can think about that example. There's these chaotic waters. There's this darkness below it. Who knows what's down there? Um, can't build on it. Can't use it the same way you use the dry land. You have the dry land and then the dry land comes to a certain shape. Now, there are upside down versions of this as well. There is there's a version where the masculine can frame the feminine. 
like because people refer to the feminine as the frame the thing which is outside of that space and then the defined space which is protected within that um it, it's something like you could say like an example would be an oasis um, meaning that the the water, the potentiality is surrounded by things we can name. So this happens, scientists experience this all the time when they're looking at something that's anomalous, right? When they're they're like, okay, we understand all of this except for this one detail, like what's going on? And so now the knowledge of the thing frames in the thing you don't know, but we're not used to looking at that or naming that thing properly. But that's like what kind of what music is. It's like we have this, it's this, it's this kind of reversing of the frame. So when I get back to what we're talking about the reflection arts, right? So the idea is when we look at the horizon, okay, so there's this idea. So if you're in the, let's just imagine that the, the stars in the sky, this is the heavens and you want to be as high up into the heavens as you can go. And then you have the stars in the sky reflecting in some placid water below or a mirror below. Now, if you're living in the mirror of the water, the move in that world towards the heavens is going to look like getting as close to the horizon as you can, right? There's a way we can look at life and we can see there's this, we could call it a rat race where people are, are struggling to get to the top of the reflection, but Christ does something wonderful. And he exposes, he exposes that there's a way you can look at reality and there's a way to enter reality where you got to understand these salient things, these things that feel like pure power, these things that feel like you're climbing the ranks of humanity are actually putting you at a deficit. Because one day when the reflection becomes the real, the people that were at the top of the reflection are at the bottom. And this is why he he says these extreme statements like the first shall be last and the last shall be first, because there is this idea that as a as a Christian, I should be moving towards the bottom and serving the most. I, I should be moving away from that so that when things are flipped, that the the these multiple details and these things that were a part of uh, the world that I that I impacted become the very top of the next thing. The bottom becomes the top, and there's this flip that happens in all reflections. It happens in music. You can see it. Like I can give you every aspect of music, and one of them was the rhythm. How the, the pattern itself is not associated with spirit and intellect. In music, the pattern is associated with body. Literally, your body responds to the rhythmic pattern. When we're presented with patterns as a part of the heavens, it's it's more of this intellectual, spiritual, noetic idea. Everything happens like this in music. The feminine is always presented as higher than the masculine in music. When in you know the ontological reality of metaphysics, the masculine categorically is above, and the earth, the feminine earth, is below. Music, you have this exact thing happening the opposite, where the feminine voice, the thing we would associate with a woman, appears higher, right? Because there's there is a way per, uh, in through perspective to look at mystery this way, where we realize everything is flipped and everything's upside down. So music is actually presenting if when music is done perfectly in its perfect setting, it's it's giving you a better presentation of what things are actually like above the things you can't reach and put your hands on. It's doing that. So that's a long thing to explain. It's a hard thing for people to get their heads around. But music is literally upside down and inside out. It just that's it's so but at the same time, it's not wrong because it's upside down and inside out. It's the proper way to understand the upside down and the inside out parts of us, meaning that that we are we have our known space and that those spots that we can't see, we can't put our finger on just like our you're, like your dreams do that. Sometimes they bring things into a pattern like the thing that you're wrestling with in life that you can't come up with an answer for this other half of your mind is working on solving this problem all the time. And music is like dreaming while you're awake in, in the sense that it's presented that because it's exposing, it's flanking you and it's, and it's showing you reality in a way um, that's true, but it's not, 
it's not explicitly presented like that in any other art form. Does any of that make sense? I feel like I'm I'm a rambling uh, bearded man over here. Uh, no, it's all really. That's I mean that I don't disagree with anything you've said. I think it's very interesting this concept of the of the reflection when you were talking about masculinity and feminine in music. I would the, the only qualifier there is that any any voice um, can perform or present feminine or masculine. So a tuba can play lyrical right. melodies that are mm -hmm. still, you could, you could categorize the, the sounds, the tonal patterns and the expression of the music is feminine. And a flute can manifest sound patterns of the masculine, right? And so, so that's, that's just sort of another layer yes. to that analogy there. Well, so um, just to add to that quick, um, but just the, the natural um, tonality of a woman's voice on average is higher. Um, that generally, if someone just played a single note on a tuba and you ask them, like you ask a kid, was that note a boy or a girl? They're probably going to say boy. And if you play a, for that same reason, because it goes back to their human experience that that men have the lower voices and uh, and women have the higher voices. So it's just one of those other surprising aspects of music when um, in reality, we see women uh, femininity framed as nature and masculinity, you know, framed as culture, like the the heavens and the earth. Um dialectic that, that's that literally is upside down in the tonality of music although you're absolutely right that's what you know like just go look at stravinsky he put instruments out of their range all the time to yeah. create a surprising effect so to okay, continue sorry. uh your to, to, i'm just going to add on to what you're saying about uh reflection um why wh why do you suppose that sound is the perfect revelation of God. Like in the story in Deuteronomy, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only mm. a voice. Why do you mm. suppose that sound is the unmediated revelation of God? Um, and then there's all of these injunctions and prohibitions on what we do with sight. Right. Uh, there's this idea that, like, if you're looking at something, at you're 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 fixing your consciousness around this object here, and that's taking your your eyes are not supposed to be looking at this. God is above and beyond all that. Right. Um, even when they try to build him a temple, he says, "I mean, can the Lord really dwell in inside a temple?" Right. Is is heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool? Um, there's uh, um, later on in Deuteronomy, it says that God gave Moses a song to teach Israel so that they wouldn't forget. And, and uh, it's, the, it's the song of Moses. And um, one of the things that the Lord says to Moses is, um, they're going to forget me, but they're going to remember this song. And this song will be a testimony against them. And, and in the words of the song, like half the song is lyrics about like God's judgment because they rebelled against him. I'm like, that is That's not going to the CCLI yeah. top 50, you know, like that oh, it should though. <laughs> <laughs> um, it should. So, so anyways, just to bring it back to that idea of, you know, for some reason, even, well, even then, Neil, even then later on in the Bible, it's like, it comes back up in the prophets where it's like, okay, the people at Horeb, they heard God's voice, but they're like, we don't want to hear it anymore because we're terrified of that sound. Moses, yeah. you be our intermediary and go up and do that. And, but then it comes back up in the prophets where it's like, actually, God wants his voice heard. Um, and and uh, even though they rejected my voice, like, I, I, like he still has a desire for us to hear his voice. And then there's Psalm 19, one of my favorites, where it, 
you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, pour forth speech, night after night, they declare knowledge. But then it says, there is no sound, there are no words, and no voices heard from them. And then the next verse, it says, yet their line or their voice um, is heard throughout all of the earth and, mm. their, and, and their words to the ends of the world. So there's this idea of there's there are sounds happening that we can't hear. Um, and this is where I, 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 I want to go just, just a smidge beyond this idea that music has only to do with that which is audiated and that which is audible. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we even experience this ourselves where, like with silent music, quote unquote, like I, when I teach my students to, to, to listen with their inner ears, like let's say that they're learning how to sight sing or sight read. And if they can audiate the notes that are written there, like in their minds without making any sounds first, then try to produce that into sound, yep. right? So there's this yep. whole idea that I could, even right now, you can hear the song Happy Birthday without having to sing a song. I'll tell you one experience I had uh, um, about 10 years ago when I was in college. So as a child, I played uh, a video game, it was Medal of Honor. And the, uh, the score of that video game is Michael Giacchino, who is a brilliant composer. And mm -hmm. the music of that video game, like those sounds just got into me. Um, and it's beautiful music. It's so well scored. The themes are so lyrical and you can just recall it. Well, there was one day I was in college. I was just walking around campus and the themes from that game came to my mind. I wasn't singing anything. I didn't hear any sounds. It's just, I audiated them from within and I was moved to tears as if I was listening to it and experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Most people, you, you start to tear up when you're in the middle of the experience of music, but I wasn't actually even in the middle of experiencing music, it was, these were audiated sounds that, that, so anyways, that, that's just another, that's just like sort of the next threshold, I think, to sort of cross through. I think, I think Karen was wanting to sort of, to, to ask that question, to what degree is music uh, uh, a pattern for all of reality, right? For all of the cosmos. I think, Karen, you were sort of messaging that in our, in our, in our. Yeah, uh, right. Our yeah, campus. so, so you just made me think of something and I just now looked it up, um, on Google, and I want to show this because um, optimize for video clip. This is just a very brief video that I saw one time, and it's talking about sound waves and how they influence. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sand and dirt and water and things like that. And I don't think the sound waves even need to be audible in our register in order to have this effect. And I think that this effect shows up throughout the cosmos from sound in the past and how it has affected structures in the present. So I'm just gonna show a little bit of this. If, if it comes up, <laughs> it wants to be on YouTube. You want to find the secrets of the universe. Think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Now the screen is showing a, a metal platform and it's hooked up to some sound vibration and at different hertz levels going to see what happens to the sand and the kind of patterns that are 
made by vibrating the metal plate. As the pitch of the tone increases, geometric patterns will form and become more complex. Now you can see these patterns forming in the sand. And the patterns are changing according to the Hertz level. there and I will link this in the uh, I will link this in the description That's section fantastic. but but this is why so you hear I, I listen a lot to Michael Levin who is um, um, he has wears so many hats but I think you would call him either a, a molecular biologist or a synthetic biologist he does all this kind of stuff with cells and he's always trying to understand what, what is the, how do cells get the message of how to put things together, put body parts together, because mm -hmm. DNA does not give that information. And there is some sort of um, chemical and bioelectric signaling that goes on between the cells that tells, tells them, tells cells how to differentiate and where to go off and do their thing, because in the, in the beginning of an entity, there's only the one cell, you know, the zygote of the male and the female coming together. And then after that, it has to differentiate. And for a while, all the cells are equivalent and then they differentiate out into different body parts. Well, it seems to me that this whole thing about sound and music is somehow embedded in that whole concept that sound and music are part of what is giving this information to the cells because music is also a way to enhance memory and cells have to have some sort of this sounds woo, -woo but they have to have some sort of memory of the future because they have when they first start out in the in the uh in the first form, they don't, and I understand this sounds materialist, Neil, but I don't mean it that way. They don't yet know where they're headed. And so there's, there's something about this sound that is showing them how to get back to where they started. Because you start with, you start with whole, you start with the whole. Then from the whole comes the, the, uh, the, the one cell from the male, the one cell from the female, and then a new life starts. And that life has to get back to the whole. So there's some sort of memory of the future. And I think that somehow music is embedded in that. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so you're talking about the cyclical aspects of music. So uh, a cycle means that a cycle has a predetermined pattern, just like the seasons that we're going to you know, if you didn't have a calendar in front of you, any particular day when it becomes winter and it starts to snow could be any winter at any time. Like we're like directly linked to the previous year or like Alistair Roberts says um, that when you're when you're having Thanksgiving dinner, you have more in common with, you know, maybe your great grandparents sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner than you did with yourself yesterday at lunch. And so you're right. Like there's this forward memory and this backward memory. I think that yep. when, we're, when we're looking at things from the idea of of God's perspective, we have to understand that we we have all these omnis. We refer to God that He's uh, that He's um, um, 
omnipotent, all powerful, you know, omniscient, all knowing, omnipresent, omnipresent. This is the one I think most people get wrong. And when they try to think about anything and as God as the originate, the origin, the father, the originator of all these patterns and all these things. When they think about this, we think about God as someone who's accompanying us through this timeline. Therefore, when God lowers a prophecy, that's foreknowledge, like, or that, or determinism, they might get confused that it's deterministic, that he's making that thing happen later. Um, but in reality, the, the, uh, the frame, the phrase omnipresent means present everywhere, always, all the time. God's never not present anywhere. He's always, he's there already. So, you know, the idea that there's going to be an aspect of that reflection in the universe in these cyclical patterns and these laws, like that makes perfect sense to me. And I think you're absolutely right in the sense that music participates that in that, and that for as little as I know about biology, you could just as easily frame up the message of what's happening as a symphony. Um, There's some sort of- that's exactly, to- that's exactly, I, I talk often with Glenn, who is a physicist, who has his own ideas about what he calls the computational universe, but he doesn't mean computation like a computer. He means that in some sense, the whole thing is a symphony and that in, in much the same way that the symphony comes into Mozart's head all at once, and then he has to take time to write out the different parts and arrange the parts and and uh, write the notes out and then give them to the musicians. And then the musicians come together and in a way the musicians are acting like uh, computational entities looking at the program and then recreating it back to the original symphony. That's yes. what he means by computational. And, and right. in that way, you could look at all of the the structure of life as a computational entity that's playing this symphony. <clears throat> yeah. And, and you're, and you're relating that to sound. And so as, as Drew was saying earlier, like music and sound um, be related. So like, if we look at the, uh, you know, I don't want to get too deep into Trinitarian theology, but there's this one moment where uh, Christ is baptized by John the Baptist and he, he emerges from the water and we see a dove ascend from the heavens, and then we hear a voice. And the voice is the Father, the dove is the Holy Spirit, and Christ is the Son, right? And so he's talking, uh, Drew's already spoken a little bit about this incarnation of, of mankind picking up the dirt and breathing life into it. Things like that happen in music all the time. You take a dead horn and you blow air into it, and there's this right. resurrection. Well, so if you look at the, if you look at how the Father represents himself, right, it's unseen, but that does not mean unheard. Like that there's there's obviously God is speaking like the God, the father speaks and makes sound. Uh, this is one one of the things we can say. This is it's like a it's a, a point of theology that most people don't point out. But when you see it presented that way, it's like, OK, so why is God speaking? So I think what you're talking about, Karen, here, I think it's, it's nice because we can kind of take these abstract, more scientific, materialistic ideas and bring the poetry and life back into them, because you can look at the Bible and you could see it as a series of like some kind of binaries, like in the sense, um, I don't mean this, you know, in a modern sense of everything's non-binary. Um, I mean this in the sense that you could just be like, okay, what are the rules? What do I need to learn to do? Where are the boundaries? Okay, fine. You're learning the boundaries. What are we learning those for? So we understand what is beautiful, what creates proper harmony, what creates discord. Um, you know, and it's actually, if you look at the Bible, it's asking for us to grow beyond something of just kind of trying to stay within this law. It's trying to graduate us into someone, and this is a very low way to say it, but I think it fits, 
someone with good taste, meaning good taste is the under the ability to recognize when something's good, when something's beautiful, when something's malformed, when something's ugly, when something's evil. And in sound, it's not so obvious that there's evil sounds, but they're, you know, good and bad is a fine way to put it. But there is something when we start to learn to do music, when we listen to music, when we see certain music has a certain effect and a certain truth that it can convey um, without using words and definitions. Uh, we we learn that maybe there's a like the the maybe the best way to frame what's happening within all of creation is there's a symphony and there's a part we have to play in that orchestra and there's a way we can um, there's a way we can do that beautifully and harmoniously harmoniously and balance the tension and release in these things or there's uh, you know there's a way we can act that's destroying the composition around us and so I think that the way I would see the universe right from the very bottom is that these these little things even these little proteins that are building DNA, they, they have a song and they have a mission and they have a rhythm, and they have a track. And it's all part of this symphony that's, you know, uh, innumerable, like infinite number of members participating in. So, yeah, I love I love that notion. I love that notion because it, it can, we can kind of bring the romance back into this life and we're not just a bunch of biological things is that we realize that, no, everything around us, everything in nature, everything uh, is presenting music to us. And it's our our determination like in the bible often frames up imagination as a bad thing because part of what happens in the story drew's telling in the garden is that people give god the wrong name they give the tree the wrong name they they and our imaginations are how we go away from the actual telos of things the actual meaning of things and we wander off and we come up with our own definitions of what things are like and there's a symphony to scripture the symphony to the bible there's a symphony to the liturgy of the church that uh, corrects and restores that, not in a way that makes us pedantic or um, we live in the world in a didactic sense, but as an active member of this incredible composition that we've been handed uh, that we can add to. Yeah, yeah. So um, so we lost Drew for a minute, um, yeah. but, but well, in his absence, I'm going to bring up... Um, just for a second, I'm going to bypass what you just said and go back to something that you said earlier, connected to the way Drew started this whole thing about which is mm. what is idolatrous. And, and the, the original idea was that music is the least idolatrous. And you made the comment, well, sometimes it can be idolatrous. And it made me think about modern contemporary worship music in the modern church often is idolatrous because um, the congregations can become so fixated on the music and the effect the music has on them and the, the sensations and the need to have that uh, spiritual experience during the music is almost as though you're idolizing the music. But, but what that made me think about was this when I think it was Drew that mentioned that in the garden with the um, the knowledge of good and evil. If you go back and you think about the, pro the evil prophets were the ones that only brought the words peace to the king. They never told mm -hmm. the king the bad side of things. They only told the king what he wanted to hear. And you made the comment about a lot of worship music that it's actually leaving out some of the bad side of the warnings that come in scripture. So I think that it, that might be what causes some modern worship music to become idolatrous is that it's only showing the happy, happy side, the, 
the touchy-feely side. It's not really exposing the deep truths of scripture about the consequences of getting off the track. Like the old hymns and the old worship music always laid out the whole word. You know, it showed the consequences, the negative side, where we would be headed if we didn't have Christ. But so much of modern music is all love, 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 happy, happy, happy. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, in pop, it's even worse than that. It's it's very it's like whatever gets your attention the fastest. And mm-hmm. and people have figured out exactly, you know, what you can you know, what you can shout out or what you can talk about or if you're bold enough to that it'll get someone's attention immediately. Um. Okay. Hey, Drew's back. We we found him. Hey, sorry about that. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I'll, I'll just say some. Um, no, no. I'll pass on. Drew, did you? Uh, where did you leave off with us? We can let you back in here. Uh, you know, I can't remember. Um, well, uh, the last thing that we did before you were talking, um, Neil, was this idea of sound structures being built into the universe through the way that sound interacts with sand, and then talking about. Is there some way in which biological life is also interacting with sound or with music or with music as memory? And uh, and I think Drew was about to say something about that. Hmm. Oh, it, that's good. Yeah. So um, something else that I tweeted, Karen, that I, I remember you saying you thought was interesting was that, like the that's like melodies we were to think of them as like an object for a second that these are these are things that don't exist in any one time okay um for the full tune for the full melody to be fully realized it it requires all that range of time to have passed uh and so you can never at the beginning of a melody experience the end of the melody or vice versa um it's only experienced through time because we're in this, this field of time. Um, but when I'm processing a melody, my phenomenological experience of that tune, uh, or let's say I'm singing a congregational hymn, right? I, I'm hearing the next sound in my head before it happens. And every note, every word that I'm singing, uh, it's, it's all about these pitch relationships that are happening over time. And so, and so, I, so I'm always interacting with relationships over time. And so memory, I'm always recalling that which has come before. And I'm always predicting or expecting, as Neil said, that which is coming ahead. And the, the fullness of the tune is that which I'm remembering, that which is in this eternal now moment. And then that which I'm expecting, and that that idea, I, uh, something I, I tweeted out was that that idea of a melody helps me to sort of grasp a little bit more, like when God says, when Jesus says, "I am the Alpha and I am the Omega." Um, the whole idea that if He is quote unquote outside of time, as 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 uh, as we like to say, it's it's He is that tune, that melody, that theme that's across all times and he's and always ever existent across all times and and then we can't experience the fullness of that at one moment uh perhaps in the new creation we will um uh but uh in that way memory is uh a deeply uh it's part of it's baked into the ontology of whatever music is it's it's uh uh music and memory and time that's all bound into this into this one sort of uh complex hole 
Yes. Oh, that's so good, man. Um, so like you, what you're describing too is also another good visual for that is a scroll. Like the idea that you had a scroll rolled up and you've unrolled part of it and you read it. Now that the part that you've read that's folded up in the top was part of your memory. The part that which is to come, which is already there, like it's it's already there, but it's going to be a surprise to the reader or to the listener is is which is yet to come. And so, but this is one of the, just to talk about a personal thing, this is one of my biggest struggles when it comes to trying to connect with people through music, because I, as every year goes along, that memory gets shorter in the audience every year that shrinks. So when you look at like, when I'm a fan of classical music, although I uh, mostly do modern music um, outside of scoring work, when you're listening to classical music, it's, it's less about this. Hey, here's my hook. Here's my thing. I'm going to repeat over and over again. Those are background parts like an ostinato or something like that, where it's, you know, setting up an arpeggiating pattern in the background to build a melody on top of that is kind of like the, the, the ontologically, the uh, melodies have almost disappeared and they've been shortened into like little hooks. And it's because people can't pay attention long enough to understand how that first note relates to the last note. Now, when you listen to classical music, it's less about the hooks and these entrances and exits that happen in popular music. It's more about what the melody is and what it's going to become. You'll hear the, their composer play with the melody and the framework around it and spend this time exploring and showing you it from different angles and then adding to it and then surprising you. And it's all wonderful, but it requires an audience who can remember more than eight seconds back. And so this is one of the things as I move forward, because I don't I don't want to surrender to the culture. Right. And just, re, you know, I don't want to surrender the culture in this attention span. Um, but also I want to figure out what are all the ways I can help them remember so that I can actually do something that's more satisfying and something that's more like a story or it's like uh you know, so one of the things about a pop song is it's it's so incomplete. You'd need more. You'd need more. You need more. But if you go and you listen to a good symphony or an opera, you're not going to go listen to another symphony and opera right after that. You're full like you had a meal. So um, what you're talking about is such an interesting point, because like, I mean, I'm kind of getting away from the meaning of music and more talking about its function in our culture because we're losing we're losing our ability to connect things. We're we're. We're losing the ability, like, and this is a, just a part of an entertainment-based culture and a consumeristic culture, because the more we're alienated from things, the more we need to supplement from outside of ourselves with purchase of, of our time and attention um, to be satisfied. So um, I think that's a that's a wonderful point you make about melody, because, yeah, melody is the story that develops over time in an implicit way. And I do, just as a personal note, wanted to mention, it's, it's, it's super sad how short the attention span is of the world now compared to some of these rich and incredible melodies we've had in the past and just watching it get reduced into three, three notes, um, you know, that get repeated and bashed, you know, with brute force over our head over and over again until we accept them. Well, I need to log off just in two minutes, but let me just throw out a couple of new ideas. Maybe some of them will push back a little bit against some things that Neil or Neil is saying. I'll be curious to hear his thoughts. Nice. Maybe, this, maybe this could be like a, a plug for a, uh, a round two, but um, so in the in the realm of church music, since the '60s, since the since the counterculture, um, I'm thinking about contemporary Christian music. When when like guitars and synthesizers enter church music, so the use of the drone, the pad, um, that became a, a a sound that was used underneath, let's say, prayer. Well, for me, that just kind of feels like a little bit of an appropriation from like the sort of the new age uh, 
appropriation of like India. So, so the sitar and Indian music and all that stuff was also sort of coming in around the sixties, seventies. And that sort of became a, the sonic embodiment of like the new age sort of spirit. Uh, and that sort of works its way into sort of contemporary Christian music. And then your comments about short motifs, like our, you know, our, our melodic memory span has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, it's very, people who have studied the use of music and ritual, um, a lot of music that, um, so Sufis, um, and then there's another, there's another style of music uh, related to uh, sub-Saharan Africans in North Africa called Gnawa music. Um, so in Sufi music and in Gnawa music and in other ritual musics in Africa, the facilitation of a trance is uh, short motifs that are repeated a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of times. So Sufis will chant the name of God, Allah, Allah, just back and forth over and over and over again, over again. They're bouncing up and down. It's very repetitive, very these short fragments of melody and rhythm, just repeating, repeating, repeating until, until finally you've just sort of, you have this out of body experience that definitely has also entered uh, contemporary Christian music mm -hmm. uh, with the use of uh, quick, short, repeating things that we sing over and over and over. We like that refrain, right? Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's a sort of a meme of, and I'm not, I'm not actually bashing Christian music for this, I, I think just on I think a purely, okay to do that. let's say on a purely <laughs> analytical level, um, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, on an objective level, those are the sounds that facilitate trans, right? And so, and so when, when you are singing that same riff over, over and over again, actually what's happening is it's bypassing the brain and let's say going down, let's say into the heart. All right. So you're, 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 and so when I, as opposed to, congregational hymns which are very lyrical and melodic well you have to be really in tune with the music like to sing like those melodies in tune right um th there is a lot of thinking involved when it comes to singing a congregational hymn i mean the text is really complicated the the melodies are now there's we would consider them archaic only because of just the the you know the the contours of the melodies and stuff they follow traditional cadences and you know very classical sounding kind of kind of melodic frameworks and things like that but anyways i i, I see like a sort of a, a a use of a common sort of let's call it a psychotechnology or a musical technology that facilitates uh an altered state of consciousness which i think is the point of a lot of praise and worship music especially when you start to slow things down about two-thirds into the worship set you know and we want to we want to quote unquote encounter the presence of god in this situation right that's usually when like you slow things down and then you hit that refrain and then it hits those those money chords you know that that special holy spirit chord progression you know and that just facility it just takes you off there's a great uh black gospel uh youtuber uh uh kevon carter and he <laughs> he does a great job of making memes out of uh out of uh traditions in black gospel music and so he's, he's like there's just something about the four chord when you end a song on the four chord, just every the bodies hit the floor, just like everybody is just praising God when you <laughs> land on the four chord. And he he has these hilarious YouTube videos that that sort of exploit that. But um, anyways, those are just 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 some thoughts about about patterns of sound and and worship and things like that. Well, so I, I know that you have to go right now, Drew, and feel free to go and and maybe we will do a round two and. Uh... 
I just want yeah, to. Yeah, fun. Up. I love talking to Drew and you guys. This yeah. is great. I want to just finish up with Neil so we don't end up kind of, you know, lopsided. Stopping mid thought. So, anyway. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for, for having joining me. Us. We got to go, but thanks yeah. for having me, everybody. Okay. That's great. All right. Take care. So, what Drew was <laughs> yes. just talking there about the yep. facilitating an altered state of consciousness. So, I used to lead worship at, at a church. <clears throat> like 20 years ago or so. And while I was a worship leader, I would go to worship conferences once a year. And there were some really good things about the worship conferences. They'd have different tracks. You could go and you could learn about some ideas about how to compose music, some ideas about how to um, bring the scripture into lyrics. And you could go to classes on how to be a good worshiper, how to get closer to God so that you are actually worshiping and not um not trying to be an idol up in front, but there were also classes on how to bring the congregation into this place of, you know, worship this, which I would call an altered state of consciousness. And those classes always made me so uncomfortable, like how to get people enthusiastic yeah. and riled up and, and how to create this atmosphere. And it's like, guys, the Holy Spirit will create the atmosphere, you know? It was so fake. It oh. just really bothered me. So okay, okay, okay. So I don't want to make too many enemies here, um, <laughs> but I have things I have things to say, and so I'll start I'll with something that we do. can agree on. Okay, so um, when Christ was asked to teach us how to pray, he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. The mm. Lord's Prayer has a very important pattern to that, and it explains the role of the church in the world. And I think it it calls into question a lot of these types of practices. And this is mm -hmm. let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's a statement that can be applied fractally. It can be applied to the whole cosmos, it can be applied to your individuality. So like, let me just start with the individual level. So hopefully we can see how it's maybe going wrong on the multi-denominational church level. Okay, so um, in my, I have a body, let's call that my earth. I have a heavens, which is my thoughts, my patterns, right? So the idea is I should have the right pattern and I should apply that body, that pattern to my body. And that if everything's working in harmony, my body says an amen to it, meaning that I have the thought to move my arm. I decide to move my arm. My arm moves. It agrees. And, and that that way, like I have dominion over my body from the heavens to the earth. Okay. So um, on a cosmic level, that makes sense. Like the idea that God is, is making all things new, that he's restoring. And there's not just this resurrection at the end of days of our bodies and our return to our bodies, because heaven is not for the Christian. It's not this disembodied floating around. It's a, it's a, it's a return to a better and glorious version of what your life already was, where you return to a body and you have an experience um, with a body that can actually do things and act in the world. Um, but that's been fixed perfectly. Okay, so we see that in the Revelation ends with this, there, behold, there's a new heavens and a new earth. It's not just a new heavens, right? It's the new heavens and a new earth. There's this resurrection of all things. Okay, the church is celebrating this. The church is, the church is supposed to be the point at which the heavens, the pattern of the heavens are lowered to the earth. So um, the bride of Christ is connected to Christ where the pattern of Christ is supposed to be lived out by the church and it goes into the world. And it's, and it's supposed to be a beautiful and incredible thing that renews the culture and renews the space around us. Okay. So the problem in modern times has been that people look at what's happening in the world. They go, they leave that bill. They leave that building. They look at all the things they like and they'd be like, well, let's bring this in here. 
Let's bring this in. Let's bring this in. So they're going to the earth to find a way to bring the heavens to the earth. It's backwards. So, you know, this is why a lot of churches just look like, you know, it's kind of like a no a low key nightclub experience without the smell of cigarettes and booze. You know, it's just and uh, and it's playing by a different set of rules. And not just to mention on top of that, when you're talking about idolatry, idolatry is putting is putting the wrong thing too high. So my subjective emotional experience being how I define worship is the perfect example of taking something that's completely outside of the realm of something defined by heaven and taking my subjective experience. Because we know that people of all backgrounds, all experiences, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer has has an ecstatic experience while he's going out and being Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. He might have some kind of elevated experience doing these horrible things. And uh, we know that that's what people who do terrible things, that's why they're doing them, because they're 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 getting some sort of experience from these things. So that the church would begin with that as the goal. And what we're aiming for is a complete it's completely backwards. And but I mean, it's a problem I experienced over across the board when I was within this like, you know, so I kind of go to a pre-denominational church now. Uh, so when I was in the denominational realm, it was so hard to deal with because as a songwriter and someone who would like to contribute to that, well, if I'm going to evangelical church, like you were talking about certain patterns of the songs, with the within the denominations, almost all of their content is specifically about and skewed towards the thing that makes them different from the other denominations. So if you know, this is why a Baptist is it would be named Baptist. Why? Because their their idea of baptism is different than the uh, the rest of the church, and so they name themselves after their difference. For me, that's ontologically too low. You have to go to the top. We're we're defined by we're defined by uh, triune God, and that pattern's being lowered to the world through the church. So that when I'm at a Reformed church, and every song is about penal substitution and or substitutionary atonement, and every song is about God's sovereignty, it's like. Well, there's this whole there's this whole thing we could be talking about. The Bible has this amazing range of things that, that help us understand reality. And we spend all of our time focusing on the one unique proposition that, that particular denomination presents. And we're presenting that in music combined with like a culture that is, you know, but combined with things that are literally borrowed from hookup culture and borrowed from, you know, what we would have considered pagan, like when it, when it comes to these kind of droning pads that like force you to focus and manipulate your emotions. For me, that's just, it's a scandal. Um, and that if I, but I think anybody in any environment, wherever they are, if they just take the Lord's prayer seriously and they take their tradition seriously and they start to think about it, like, no, like we're not here we're not going to go to the world and ask them what the church should be. We're going to go to God and then let the church change the world. If they start to think about it that way and they and they start to evaluate those decisions when that worship leader is choosing music or choosing songs or how to present that song to, song to a group of people, um, it's it should get better. It should move away from idolatry and I and and worshiping our own emotional state and calling that oh worship. Because that creates a tremendous amount of fusion, confusion because you go to a, a film or a soccer game or whatever, and you're excited. You're confusing your state of, of being with the state of worship. And that's not how the Bible defines worship. It does not define worship as when your attitude is in this specific way. Now you're worshiping, right? It's it's not how it uh, it defines it. So um, that's the thing I would say about music. If we're going to get back to like just if it's of any interest to anyone listening, how it functions in the church, think about meditate on that verse. You know, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not the other way around. Not let we don't look to the culture. We don't look to the way of the world. We don't look to this economy of 
of importance and clout and fame. No, we actually strip ourselves of that. And we realize we're, we were sent here to serve and love God and uh, with all our heart, mind and strength. And then we can start to see what, then we can hopefully move towards what music could really be and what it could really do if we can just escape this kind of loud and salient culture around us. That is a terrific place to end. Yeah. Um, and that verse is fractal all the way down, I think, to the particle level. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. There's yeah. no level you can't apply it on. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend this this very stimulating conversational moment with me and with Drew. And, uh, and let's keep up the conversation on Twitter, and that'll give us an idea of what to tackle next time. I love it. I haven't been on social media much yet. After I release an album, I get kind of burnt out. So I've just kind of been uh -huh. checking in to make sure no one's, uh, you know, leaving inappropriate comments on my stuff. But I will be <laughs> back on shortly and we can continue the conversation. I just need probably another two weeks <laughs> of, of fasting from it. Um, <laughs> Sounds really good. Yeah. Okay. You got it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll send you I'll send you the MP4 of this so you can tag in that little piece of music. And uh, yeah. I'll yeah. be happy to do that. For you. Okay. Great. Yeah, for sure. Have a great day. Awesome, Karen. Thanks. And thanks for introducing me to uh, Drew. That was a great conversation. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, very good. Right. Okay, bye-bye. Right. God bless.